on any given week I can have conversations with people in my work environment, on the street, who remember his work, who think about his work, who still sing his songs. His first job was as a secondary school teacher in Whakatane and one of our children was born in the two years we lived there and then we moved to Wellington because he became the Māori editor for what was then school publications and that was a very important creative time in his life because he started exploring the written word as well as his music in those days and he did a lot of, um, he did a lot of writing for uh, a Māori language publication. In 1991, the book Toi Api Api was published. It featured many of the songs written by Tūhoi and Ngāti Kahungunu songwriter Dr Hirini Melbourne. It's been 13 years since his death. This year, the book was re-released in light of its 25th anniversary. Dr Hirini Melbourne was also pivotal in bringing back the art form of Tonga Puro, traditional Māori instruments, the hue, kōwauwo, putorino, to name a few. He was keen to write his own nursery rhymes that he penned a few classic songs in the Reo Māori, still sung at preschools or kohangareo. As part of our series about Māori books, we profile the work of Dr Hirini Melbourne and talk to those who knew him best, his whānau. It was quite simple, really. Um, you know, the bird songs themselves suggested the melody line. Again, I would, um, just listen to the ranges of notes they could make, and of course they vary from one bird, uh, different times of the year. And not every tui would sing the same thing all the time. And they have a range of uh, notes and melodies, variations, and so on. But I just uh, take. Um, a particular phrase, I suppose, from the song of the Tui, the Owl, the Kiwi, and so on. Say, so, oh, I can imitate that, and I can develop a melody line from it. The Melbourne Fano supported the re-release of the Toy Yapi Yapi songbook, and in many cases, the original was a rare find. Jane Melbourne. Uh, it's an album, it's 25th um, anniversary reissue, and it's an album that was really, really popular back in the day. In fact, um, for about 20 years, I haven't known anybody who still had a copy. It was, um, it, they just used to disappear. In fact, to be quite honest, everybody's got stolen. <laughs> and um, Michael Keith, Sydney's dear friend who was responsible for doing this reissue had to he had to get a copy from Amazon in the States before he could start um, working on the reissue again so um, hopefully I think I think that there'll be people who'll be really happy that it's available again at the moment it's the CD the the book with all the words and translations and there's a CD included but CDs by themselves are going to be released as soon as they're ready, which should be quite soon, and it will be available in MP3 format as well. Where, where 
did you did you meet him? Um, we were both university students in Auckland in the late 60s. I was um, amassing a small and disparate collection of not very useful stage one units and spending far too much time in the <laughs> coffee bar. But he was doing, Sid was doing a teaching degree. In those days, there weren't a lot of um, there weren't a lot of Maoris at Auckland University, so you all knew each other. So, what did you make of him? Um, well, he was very. He was from. His first language was Māori, and he was incredibly shy. So, in fact, it was quite hard to get him to talk. <laughs> but he did used to play a lot of guitar. The name of this song is Horana Obviously, he, he had an affinity to music from the from the get-go. Can you tell us more about that and how, um, when you, I suppose, first started courting each other and how music was eventually a huge part of his, of his life, but also part of your family dynamic eventually? He was always, he was always um, really interested in guitar. He was... He was self-taught and he couldn't read music, but he had an amazing ear. And um, he started writing songs when our children were little because he wanted them to have, um, like really, originally it was like he wanted nursery rhymes in Te Reo Māori to go alongside the English ones they were learning. So I think actually it was his children that really started him on the path of composition. He was always, you know, picking up the guitar and trying another sound and another song, and the kids just thought that was just how life was. Yeah. So when he when he talked about inspiration, obviously he's written a lot of um, uh, songs about um, insects and birds and the sounds that birds make. So um, obviously the the kids were an inspiration too. Yes. Yeah. And but in fact he wanted the the music he made for the kids he wanted it to be about the natural world and he was always he was always fascinated by by nature and by animals and birds Dr. Hidini Melbourne was recognised for his work with Dr. Richard Nuns. Both revived the art form of Tonga Puro or traditional Māori instruments. His wife Jane says first and foremost, Hidini's passion was Te Reo Māori. And he saw music as being something he could give to the, the children of Aotearoa to help encourage their reo. His first job was as a secondary school teacher in Whakatane and one of our children was born in the two years we lived there and then we moved to Wellington because he became the Māori editor for what was then school publications and that was a very important creative time in his life because he started exploring 
the written word as well as his music in those days. And he did a lot of um, he did a lot of writing for uh, uh, Māori language publications for schools um, when he was there. And he went from school publications to Waikato University, which opened up another whole raft of opportunities for him. And also that's when he met people like Terita Papesh and Hinewehi Mohi, who were both students of his. Actually, so was um, Moana Maniapoto, all of whom um, he, on the Api Api, both Terita and Hinewehi are yes. singing on that. You know, talking about musicians, we obviously have his very, very close friendship and relationship with Richard Nunns, both who were very instrumental in bringing... Um, Tonga Puro to the fore, and then we have the likes of uh, Horo Monohoro, a young, young yeah. man from uh, from the Waikato who is really, um, you know... Um, at the carrying pin- the beacon ca- forward? Yes, yes, exactly, carrying that, um, that rako forward. In March this year, a new collection of Tonga Puro was gifted to the Conservatorium of Music at the University of Waikato. The instruments were made by Brian Flintoff and commissioned by Associate Professor Martin Lodge. The opening ceremony was about recognising the work of Dr Hidney Melbourne, Dr Richard Nunns and Brian Flintoff. Taungapuro practitioner, Horo Mona Horo. Well, firstly, I'll start off with Matua Hirini. Um, it's the one thing that I've that I'll always remember with Matua Hirini is his humility uh, and the way that he would hold himself when he played the Taonga Puro. Uh, of course, we all know him because of his wonderful songwriting and composition style with a number of his waiata still being played all over the motu today. Um, but in the realm of Taonga Puro, you know, he would, he would say he will teach Taonga Puro firstly to Tuhoi, being from Tuhoi. And then he'll teach Nga Tangata Māori, like Māori people. And then he'll teach anybody that fell in love with the music. So how did um, the relationship with, with Richard Nunns, were you, how did that come about, um, Jen? Um, it was actually through a friend of ours. We were on holiday down in the Bay of Plenty and our friend there, Haki McRoberts, heard that there was going to be, that Richard Nunns was going to be, I think at Tararoa, doing a demonstration of Tonga Puro and and he and Sid went to went to that and that was the beginning of Hedini's relationship with with Richard and his journey of discovery with Tonga Puro. And they were a very good fit together musically and yeah, and that's that weekend sparked a lot of creativity. But the other thing I think that is really important was I think that he and Richard really did rescue the Taonga Poro from really from a complete obscurity. They um, they had a lot of help from Brian Flintoff because play instruments until they were made, and Brian made all their stone, all their bone and wooden one or wooden instruments, and Clem Mellish. Um, made all their stone ones. So it was a very cooperative enterprise. But I think that the revitalization of the sound of Tonga Puro so that it's just part of our it's part of Aotearoa's soundscape now. But you can you kind of forget that it actually there were decades and decades when 
you never heard them. So I think I think that's probably the most important thing. Go go. Wakarongo kite ruru go go. Kuato nei tera tera. Te tangi nei o te pouri. Kuato nei tera tera. Ruru. Mahina, Melbourne. On my dad's side, I'm from the Bay of Plenty and Hawke's Bay area, Tuhoi and Ngāti Kahunanu, and on my mum's side, from Ngāti Parau. Um, my dad grew up in Rātoki, that's where my nanny and Koro lived, that's where we've always associated with going home, I'm going home too. Um, and we grew up in mostly in Hamilton. Uh, I remember times from when we lived in Wellington before my sister was born. My dad was the publications, um, Māori publications or editor at school publications. And um, after that, he got his job at Waikato University. So my parents and whānau were based based in Hamilton um, from when I was four until Dad passed away. Mm. And of course, Dad's been gone for about 13 years now, uh, back in 2003. Um, but this this re-release of the book, Toi Api Api, it must kind of feel like Dad's legacy is still obviously around. Yeah, I think I'm really lucky. I work in the education field. And so even though Dad has been gone for a long time, on any given week, I can have conversations with people in my work environment, on the street, who remember his work, who think about his work, who still sing his songs. And so, you know, even when I'm doing working in my own professional capacity, I can turn up at meetings and have people mihi to me, and they see me as the face of my dad. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are times when it feels like he's been gone for a really long time. Uh, only mine and my my sister's oldest two children met him. And so when you look at our babies, you realise there's a huge part of their lives that doesn't involve their kōro. Um, but then there are other times when he's still very much alive, his work is very much alive. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that we really, I think we're really lucky to have that. He was just an ordinary dad. He loved us, and um, but other people carry that grief and don't get to share it with people, and we get lots of fond memories and stories. Both my sister and I are not particularly musical, and so... <laughs> it's a surprise, <laughs> really? Oh, I look... The disappointment on people's face when they meet me and then discover that not only do I not sing and not play the guitar, but I also can only marginally play some of the tonga portal. (laughs) (laughs) They look at me and think, yay, she's going to sing us a song, but that doesn't happen. So there was no pressure from Dad to pick up 
Taonga Puru at a young age when they must have been just around the home yeah. all the time? Well, so I guess the thing is, is that Dad's music, from my perspective, was always he was a guitar player. And so he, you know, it would just he would be walk he would walk around the house playing his guitar constantly. Uh, that was something that he did. He once tried to teach me to play the guitar. He showed me a chord. He said, "And now strum." And when I looked at him and said, "I don't know how to strum," he shook his head in disbelief and walked away. Um, so that, <laughs> that was, in terms of the guitar, that was not a thing for us. Um, but in terms of a Tonga portal, once they entered our lives, we were extremely lucky. This was when, you know, the only other Tonga were sitting in museums and we had them in our sitting room. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I can play the pukaia, the putatara, the kōwowo, um, as well as, you know, learning, taking opportunities to learn about those instruments as that knowledge was uncovered at home. I also did the Tonga Portal course at Waikato University when I was doing my studies to, you know, that was a really structured and intellectual way of learning about the instruments, but yes. I, that way of learning about them worked for me as well. So the book Toyapi Yapi, I mean, the genesis of the book, uh, um, your mother was telling me that um, the publisher had to get a copy from the Amazon.com website because they were so rare. But how did this come about and how were the, was the whānau involved in just making sure that, you know, everything was taken care of in terms of the, the layout of the book and its re-release? How did that all come about? I think the thing with Toyapiapi is it's quite interesting because it's one of those stories which is about Māori as a people right across the country. Whereas nowadays there's a lot of people that talk about iwitanga, you know, this this is the knowledge um, associated with us as a people belonging to a particular region with a particular shared whakapapa from particular shared tipuna. With the Tonga Pūro, this knowledge is not defined in that way because when Dad went through the process of working with other Tonga Pūro pa- people, players, and um, doing wānanga around the country, the body of knowledge was drawn together like, I mean, I guess if you think of the book like a cloak, the different threads, the different feathers that make up that cloak come from totally different parts of the motu. So, the you know, the knowledge about each of the instruments isn't just associated with one particular iwi or one particular kōrero. Threads come through from different stories and different kōrero gathered up right across the country. So in that way, it's really special because it's the first was the first attempt at recording all those instruments, and it was the first attempt at writing about all those instruments. In terms of the re-release, um, mm. it's just been you know it's been about staying true to the original intent. Uh, the, Michael Keith, whose um, company Shearwater produced this um, this latest edition, is an old family friend. He worked with Dad on the original Toyapiapi, and the intention was that this was actually updated many, many moons ago, not to be done now in 2016. And so Dad has actually had input into things like the layout of the songs, 
the layout of the book. Uh, the original recording of Toyapiapi was done onto a cassette tape, so there were restrictions there around song order because you had to fit as many as much music as you could onto each side of the tape. Those um, restrictions are removed when you're working in a digital format, and so you know, what's here is actually still remnants of work that was done by Dad with with Michael um, before he passed away. Mm, I'm keen to know what one of your favourite songs is, um, Mahina. <laughs> you can talk I, about that. Oh, I um, I just feel so privileged to have had a dad that was such a prolific writer. Um, I love a lot of his songs for totally different reasons. Um, I love Pūririhua because it is a song that is still adored by babies who speak Māori, who speak English, who speak other languages. It's one of the first songs that they learn in kōhanga and it's a song that they that people associate with being happy and being their childhood. Um, there's others like um, Hinepu Kohurangi, which are about you know who who I am. It's a story about my whakapapa, about my iwi. Um, so I love that. There's stories, um, songs, Hinemoana, which Dad wrote in a boat in Tekaha, which is where we used to have all our summer holidays. So that song nice. reminds me of you know beautiful childhood memories. We would stay in Teka for about a month every summer. Um, and then, you know, he's got songs that inspire activism and, and awareness. Um, he's got songs that teach you about um, a Māori way of looking at the world, a Māori way of seeing um, seeing the things in the environment, the birds, the trees. And, um, yeah, so when, when each song has the power to hand over knowledge and teach you about something that, you wouldn't otherwise know each one of them's really, really special. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, that's the thing for me. I guess I, I'll be in a space where someone asks me a question about a tikanga associated with, I don't know, a bird or a tree, and I'll know the answer to it, and I'll think later, how come I said that with such confidence? And it's because it's in a song. So I, I mean, these songs like Erere Te Manu, Fitsi Te Marama. So your dad's music has definitely, um, it's gone through generations. Yep. Pūrere Hua. Ngai Wee with the top twins singing it.
my one of my earliest childhood memories is uh, sitting on my sheepskin underneath his desk at school publications and eating fish and chips with him for lunch on Parliament lawn. And I I was three years old at the time. And so, yeah, even though my mum was the one that stayed home and looked after us, I've got memories all the way through my childhood of spending time with my dad. Uh, he used to take me on university trips, so he'd travel with the students and buses and vans and things, and I'd be there. So I went all the way to the far north to Cape Danga with my dad as a child on one of those university trips um, through my teenage years into places like Waikare Moana. Uh, so I got I got lots of opportunities that now with, with him being gone, I, I really miss. I realise how lucky I was to have had that experience, um, to be sitting around native language speakers. Even though I didn't really speak Māori myself, uh, being around native Māori language speakers, both academics and people from Tūhoi, those are things that um, you know people people just are so jealous of of that other people had that opportunity um, and yeah so that was that was one of the things about being his daughter was that we did get lots of exposure to things that are very very special um, you know mm. like I say we had all those tonga in our home and they are you know beautiful museum-worthy pieces, so really grateful. Um, also, I mean, we do all sorts of stuff with him, but particularly outdoors. Uh, he loved going into the bush. We do things like, I don't know, go on unsuccessful trips to look for kōkākō um, <laughs> uh, or go down to the beach. In terms of his writing music, he... He didn't really write music by sitting down and writing things out. He he mm. wrote music by walking around and playing his guitar and, you know, playing with words and telling stories in that way. Uh, the, the downside to that was that every time he performed a song, it could be different because there was a lot of fluidity in the way that he wrote and the way that he thought about his songs. I always say to people, if that's what you heard Dad sing, then you've got a version for you. And if you heard something, if the other person heard something different, then that was their special version of the song. <laughs> <laughs> when I wrote, I wrote up um, some of his diaries that had some of the words to the songs, and and there were some songs that had five or six variations. So I saw, <laughs> I saw that as I was trying to collate that too. Dariruiru, according to the Māori, was a wise bird with knowledge of changing seasons. When this cheerful little creature is heard warbling in the spring, it is said to be calling people to prepare the ground for the planting of crops. One can also predict what the coming season will be like by noting the direction in which the opening of the Riruiru's nest faces. He was um he played he played with words and sounds lots and you see that I don't know I 
I think I think some people notice that about his songs, but I really noticed it when I was doing writing them up and you know seeing how he would um, play with rhythms and um, word lengths and beats and that kind of thing in each of the in each of the songs and even songs that are, are for babies and quite simple they can have quite tricky or playful word elements to them. The song that comes to mind is Noke, Noke Neke Nuku, Niki Naki Nu, Kari O Na Wai Wai, Hei Mau Hu. The way that he has, has left a body of work that means who he was as a person and how he looks looked at the world uh, continues to be um, available to influence and shape, you know, Māori identity and how Māori want to work, live in the world and think about the world. That's, I think, it's really, really interesting and clever because that's the thing. They're not just well. I mean, maybe to some people they're just songs, but to me they are a way of a way of living and interacting with the world that's kind of different to how other people see things. Yeah. 